We're sisters, best friends, and authors on a mission to help you stoke your creative fire and live the life of your dreams. We believe that purpose fuels passion and that creativity is your secret weapon for mass construction. There's never been a better time to bless the world with your dream realized. You're listening to The Kate and Abby Show. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Kate and Abby Show. Today is a highly requested topic, a long, it's been a long time since we did one of these, a story mining episode on villains. This has been something that you guys have requested and we are delivering finally at long last. It's been forever since we sat down and did a story mining episode. And if you are new around here, you can't remember the other story mining episodes. Basically what Kate and I do is we sit down and put our heads together as writers, as fans of story, and we figure out what is it about stories that we love, what is it that makes them work? And specifically digging into elements that we admire about particular stories and figuring out why they work and how to apply those principles to our own writing. So that's what story mining is all about. And in this episode, we're talking about how to craft an unforgettable villain. More specifically, five ways to craft a unforgettable villain that is terrifying and memorable and convicted, somebody that you love to hate a character that you love <laughs> yes, to hate. that's a great way to put it. <laughs> so we're digging into that today. We have Spooky, haunting villains. Yes. <laughs> we have five story examples. So this is going to be laid out like we're going to go over five principles, five ways that you can create a unforgettable villain in your story. And for each principle, we're going to give a story example that we personally love and have learned from and dig into that. So... Before we get started, we have to thank our sponsors, who are you guys. You're the ones who support us, support this show, and keep it going, and we so appreciate your love and support. So if you get value out of this podcast, go to patreon.com slash the Kate and Abby show and help us keep this show alive and free of interruptions. Okay, so let's jump into it. Let's get right into the first principle, the first way to make your villain unforgettable and this to me is this applies to every character obviously but especially with villains is make your villain deeply conflicted this is so so important it's important with your main character no matter if they're a protagonist or an anti-hero but it's especially especially important with an antagonist and kate and i have both collectively agreed when we were brainstorming this episode that our Favorite example of a deeply conflicted villain is George Warleggan from Poldark. Yes. One of the, probably the best villain. Yes. <laughs> so we're hugely into British television. And a lot of these examples we're going to give are from, uh, yeah, they're British. <laughs> uh, the British films, British TV series. Take note and go check them out. Yeah. We were raised on British television, mostly have always watched British television. So watching sometimes or like when we watch an American thing, it's like, oh, wow, this is this is American. Okay, but that's just us. But there are so many incredible British shows that we're going to talk about here. Take note of them because they're amazing stories. Yes. And Poldark is one of our top favorites. Yes, it is for sure. I would say that it's like my favorite show of all time 
really well because yeah, yeah. it's definitely the, one of my top it, it never gets old to me <laughs> i just like rewatch it so much because the writing is so good especially in the first two seasons and just everything about it is so immaculate but specifically the character of george who is the rival to our protagonist ross poldark so the story is mainly following ross poldark in the first first season first two seasons really before it starts to kind of veer off to other side characters but the character that you care the most about of course is ross he's the hero he is trying to help other people in his community and just be heroic but we also see that he is deeply conflicted but at the same time he is kind of in this rivalry with george who has always seen him as he's always kind of looked up to ross in a way but also resents him for that yeah (laughs) resents him because he is like everything that george cannot be no matter how hard he tries because you see that he tries to kind of buy his way through social ranks and be somebody that is respected and liked but he's not likable because he he's a selfish person and he's too concerned with getting what he wants and being respected and being seen as somebody important that he totally misses it (laughs) right and and he's also resentful of the fact that ross actually has a lot less than he does because they both come from similar backgrounds but george is able to like sort of climb the social ladder and become very wealthy and very um successful is welcomed in of the high society circles and everything where ross isn't necessarily he isn't as wealthy but yet george can see that even with all his wealth and power he still doesn't have what ross has which is being loved by the people which is what he's always wanted but can never have So you have this really interesting dynamic of these characters have known each other for a long time since they were young people and that conflict has always been there kind of eating away at George Werleggen's character. And so it creates this very interesting tension between the two characters. And George is also in love with the same girl that Ross has always been in love with. So that just adds, it's just like layering on the angst between these two characters and also their similarities because there is similarities with their character you can see that they come from a similar background they actually have a few similar character traits but they go they diverge there they go to different directions which makes it even more intriguing exactly yeah it does because their personalities are very similar like you said and how how you see George's internal conflict comes from really his background in that he's deeply insecure. And even though you don't go into the past through flashbacks or anything and see his childhood, you hear enough about his childhood and his upbringing and his background that he, you know how he has this insecurity about he wasn't necessarily born into nobility right. and born into high society, but he's been able to acquire the wealth and influence that has brought him to that level. But he has this insecurity about that constantly. Right. And so that is really a weakness that gives an antagonist and any character really humanity. Yeah. And that's, that's a problem I think a lot of writers run into with writing villains is they try to make them bad and evil and sinister and they forget about the humanity aspect yeah you know i'm not saying that you should glorify your villain or make them seem like they are actually a good guy they've just made mistakes like sometimes they're not 
they're not good at yeah. all. What but they're they, doing is not okay. Yes, what but they're doing is not okay. We can but, understand how they arrived at that point. That's right. important. There has to be a reason. And I think that was one of the things we talked about a lot in when we were when we were starting to talk about like what makes a villain great is they have to have a reason for what they're doing. It can't just be because I'm an evil psycho. <laughs> you know what I mean? And no yeah. other reason at all. And, and George Warlegan, you see these very nuanced, but yet deep reasons that are attached to his own insecurities. So it makes it feel very realistic and very human. Yeah. And you see why he reacts to every single thing the way he does. Yeah, and why he's not even satisfied when he sabotages Ross's life and his decision, his businesses, the different ventures that he goes into. George is like constantly sabotaging things for Ross. And even when he succeeds, you can see that he's still not satisfied because he's dealing with his own internal conflict and his own demons continue to haunt him because it really has nothing to do with ross it's completely about himself right you know yeah. so that's that's definitely step number one for any writing any character crafting any character but especially for antagonists because you want them to have a good reason for doing bad things exactly and go watch that entire show yes just, just really yeah, do i know some of you guys have already watched it based on a recommendation which is awesome because it's such a good show it's amazing so the next point the next way number two next way to make your villain unforgettable is a method that i find really really impressive when it's done well which is to hide your villain in plain sight and this can be pulled off several different ways, but as Kate and I were brainstorming this podcast, we both thought of this example, which is one of our favorite examples from classic literature from Oliver Twist, the one of the villain characters. Dickens usually has a few multiple villains in his story. A whole stories. gang of villains. <laughs> a whole gang of villains, but one of the main antagonists, which is Mr. Monks, mm. is his his name that he goes by in the book. Right. And Kate and I both have not read the original book of Oliver Twist, but we both love the BBC series, big surprise version, um, which I believe was made in 2007. Yeah, 2007. Is We've seen like, I think every adaptation of yeah. Oliver Twist, but this is, in my opinion, the best one is yeah. the 2007 BBC miniseries of Oliver Twist. Yeah, I agree. And they took a few creative liberties with it that, in our opinion, just took the story to the next level with yeah. the internal conflict of the villains that just added so much to the story right so i believe in the original book it was that mr monks is the half brother of oliver twist and he's basically trying to hunt him down and destroy him so that he his his inheritance is not threatened um and if you know the story of oliver twist you know that of course everything ends happily for oliver in the end but the creative liberties that I thought were really well done in the series we're talking about is that Mr. Monks was more of a central character in that show. It was He was introduced earlier on in the context of the Brownlow family, and Rose was also brought into the Brownlow family as um, the, well, her uncle. She calls him uncle. She calls Mr. Brownlow uncle, but it's really her guardian. And her sister was Oliver's mother. So it's kind of like, it's one of those Dickens family yeah, trees. That's is takes... gonna, you need like to draw it out to be able to understand it sometimes. Yeah. 
<laughs> it can be confusing. But um, so basically, the the way that I thought they did it really well was to bring monks in earlier as a character that doesn't seem to be a villain. He seems to be a kind of slimy side character that you're not sure what to think of him, but he's generally accepted in their family and in society, and he's looked upon as a perfectly fine gentleman that is trying to court Rose, trying to get her to marry him, basically. (laughs) But she is a little bit like, eh, no thanks. Yeah. (laughs) But she doesn't even really know quite why she doesn't like him, but she just doesn't like him. She just senses there's something a little something a little creepy going on in the in the background. Yeah, exactly. Over there. Yeah. And and they at first when you're seeing the antagonist, you don't really know who it is because it's kind of like just showing the back of him when he's talking to characters. So you're kind of like, "Mm, who's that? And at the same time, you've already seen Mr. Monks in the setting of the household and stuff like that. So then when those two things come together and you make the connection of like, oh, he's the villain who's actually working behind the scenes Mm -hmm. when they finally do reveal that through this pretty pivotal conversation that he has with um, Fagin. Yes. And where it's finally revealed, oh, he's the one who's trying to make this deal to get Oliver killed so that he gets the inheritance. It's just this kind of like hair-raising moment yeah. of like, oh my gosh, it's the guy who's like living in the same house, the villain hidden in plain sight. And that's really what makes a villain so much creepier mm-hmm. than like, oh, here I am, you know, the villain in the black cloak with the sickle and, you know, the, the Halloween mask. It's like, well, obviously that's the villain, you know, running around uh, talking like Darth Vader and stuff. Like we, right. we know that it's, and it's not even that scary because we know what it is. What is more scary to the human psyche is things that are unknown. So when it's, you know, is that creepy monster looking thing trying to kill me? Or is my best friend secretly trying to kill me? Which one of those two things is creepier? The best friend trying to kill you because you can't detect that. Right. It's an unknown to you. It's, it flies under the radar. And it's those things that truly scare people, right. in my opinion, it, it, because it's not obvious. You wouldn't guess it. You could easily miss it. And so that makes it feel so much more dangerous. Yes. Because it's a threat that you can't really identify. Yeah. So it's like so much creepier, like you were saying. Yeah. And so much more thrilling, I think. It brings more suspense, especially like you were saying, that pivotal moment when you find out like, oh my gosh, Mr. Monks is, I think his name is Edward. I like can't even yes, remember. Edward. Mm-hmm. Edward. Okay. He is Edward who is living in their house and trying to sabotage Oliver's yeah. life. It's like, whoa, it's this game changing midpoint really. Right. And I think it kind of happens towards the midpoint. I can't quite yeah, remember Yeah, I think anymore. it does. It is around yeah. the midpoint of the series. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like it, it adds that plot twist moment. Right. You know, that upends the protagonist's life. Yeah. And also surprises the viewer, surprises the audience by revealing something that you weren't expecting it also introduces so much more uh suspense because now every time you see him interacting with the other characters who are none the wiser you're like oh my gosh this is the villain don't tell him that don't you know what i mean yeah so it adds so much more you're so much more engaged yeah than 
like clearly everyone knows it's the villain because you would have to be like have your eyes closed to not know it's the villain yes exactly you'd have to have your head buried in the sand to not understand that this monstrous looking thing is the villain exactly yeah so the villain hidden plain sight very powerful tool yes very powerful definitely consider it if you are writing a villain and you're not sure what to do with them (laughs) they should be the the scary ominous figure in the black cloak or if they should be the lying scheming person who is hidden in plain sight who doesn't seem harmful at all they seem harmless (laughs) right a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing right that's the other thing i was looking for so point number three third way to make your villain amazing and terrifying and unforgettable is to give your protagonist, this one's kind of niche, give your protagonist a reason to spare or save the villain. This is something that I find a really interesting conflict. Yes. That when done well, it is so engaging because you always expect the protagonist to be out to get the villain. We know who the target is. We know who the threat is. We need to destroy them, right? We are on the warpath and it's everything is like a black and white issue. We know exactly what we have to do right. to win this battle or whatever. Very clear path. Yeah, but that also kind of doesn't leave room for those nuanced emotions and details. And an example of this done well, of giving your protagonist a reason to spare the villain and some really good internal conflict is in a series that Kate and I both love. Again, guess, BBC. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's BBC. Um, I think four out of five of these are BBC, and we're not even sorry. And it is the series, The Musketeers. Mm, Such a good series. (laughs) The villain character of Milady de Winter, who is, I think, one of the main antagonists in the book, which I have not read the book yet, but it's on my TBR. I'd really like to read it. Yeah. I know the show is based off of the first season, I think, is based off the book, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And I know they took a little bit of creative liberties with some of the details, but it's so good. Such good acting, such good writing. Right. And the thing is, is even even if some of these these series and films are different from the book, it's it still can be case studied as a story because a story is a story. A story is a story is a story. Yeah. So even if it's a little different from the book. (laughs) And The Musketeers is such a great show. If you guys haven't seen it, it's it's so good. It it has great characters, just fantastic writing. But the character of Milady, particularly clashing with the character of Athos, is the conflict that we're talking about here. Because she is why don't you explain it? Because you know it's so much better than (laughs) that. So essentially she and Athos were married a lot, like way back when, and it's introduced through flashbacks. And those of you who've read the book or watched any adaptation know a bit about this. So they were married. Um, it was discovered that she he figured out that she was a petty thief. She ended up lashing out through a series of events, killing his brother. And because of that, because he was like the magistrate at the time, I think, um, he had to convict her basically to hang. And so he always felt like, oh my gosh, you know, I killed my wife, but his hands were tied because of the law. And obviously he was conflicted and heartbroken too because she did just kill his brother. So there's that love-hate relationship there. 
So, um, unbeknownst to him, she actually was cut down and revived and still lives. So all this time, years and years have passed. He's a musketeer now. He thinks she's dead, but really she's haunting him with a thirst for revenge, to take revenge on him for what he did to her. However, once that's revealed, once he, once he finds her, it's like she is his kryptonite because he still has feelings for her, even right. though she's a little bit evil, a, a lot evil, <laughs> a lot, evil. a lot. Evil. Yeah. And but she he, like virtually can't destroy her. He virtually can't destroy her because he already has so much internal conflict about the fact that it was his fault that she almost died. She would have died if, if she hadn't persuaded someone to cut her down. And it was his decision. He had the final deciding choice in the matter and he let that happen and he can never get over that and so because of his own internal conflict it won't allow him to defeat the villain who is his ironically his own wife and on the flip side of that coin she's an incredibly complex and conflicted villain because she loves him but also was a thief conflicted by her own past and still lashing out violently to defend herself so she has all this baggage and you can see that part of her wants to be redeemed but part of her wants to be how she's always been so there's like this great conflict with her as a villain yeah and he's conflicted about his own feelings for her which inhibits him from ever being able to defeat her right so it's like this it's like she is his baggage she is his ghost that prevents him from like ever being able to get away from her or defeat her right exactly and it creates such an interesting dynamic between the characters and such a great conflict because it's totally character driven yet it's like checkmate for the protagonist Right. And it's it, they're like always in this deadlock of not being able to defeat each other right. because they're battling with their internal feelings and desires and they just can't bring themselves to destroy each other. And it's so it's such an interesting plot uh, plot device, especially for like series writing. I think when you have a villain, but you don't want to destroy the villain like in the first book because you have many other books planned or maybe you're writing a tv series and you don't want to destroy the villain because you need the villain you you need this story to continue it's a great method for keeping a villain alive without it being this annoying merry-go-round of i try to destroy the villain but they can't be destroyed because they're all powerful like that is way less engaging to me right. than this deeply conflicted, like, I can't because I love them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love the it villain, even though so I, interesting. I hate the villain. It's like, yeah, exactly. It makes it so much more interesting and makes you engage with it so much more as the audience because you kind of, you can empathize with the characters on both sides and wonder what you would do in that position. Right, exactly, you know? yeah. It's just, it's It makes so, so much more sense than... Just every single bullet happens to miss the villain and (laughs) they happen to live through every single explosion and car crash and car chase and falling off the cliff. They're just indestructible. It makes it feel like, oh, they resurrected themselves again. Yeah. You know, it makes it more realistic. Like, okay, you kind of want, you almost like, it's like you want them, him to kill the villain. But you don't at the same time because you understand the internal conflict and you understand how they both got to the point that they're both at. It just makes it so complex and just, oh, so good. It does. You just want them to be happy. 
<laughs> yeah, you just want them to be happy. <laughs> but they can't be because they're doomed from the start. Yep. It's so good. So con- consider that when you're writing your next villain. Maybe make them untouchable by the protagonist, undefeatable, not because they're all powerful, but because the protagonist has this deep connection to them that they can't bring themselves to destroy the villain. (laughs) Right. Another really cool way to use your villain, especially for series writing, but it also works for any type of story, is to make your villain a misdirection. So by that, I mean, it's like a, you think that this is the villain, but really, they just, it's revealed that they are pointing to a bigger, worse villain or a mysterious villain that has not been revealed yet. So this can be done several different ways. But the example that came to Kate and I was the first, it's the first episode, right? Mm-hmm. The first episode of Sherlock. Again, <laughs> British, <laughs> British TV A lot show. of you guys have probably, this is one of those British TV series, though, that was extremely yes. popular in America. Yeah. So it's a lot, lot of-, of you guys have probably <laughs> seen it. Comment below if you're on YouTube and tell us because I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen this one. Yeah, yeah. that had a rabid fan base. This has mm. a rabid fan base. But yeah, so the episode with what is it called? The cab driver? I think it's called The Study in Pink. The, right? Oh, The Study in Pink, right. Because yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. it's. I think it's like inspired by The Study in Scarlet, which I haven't read, but okay, it's like the yeah. original Sherlock Holmes. Do you want to recap? I don't know if I can adequately recap. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, I think I've watched more of the series than you. you I've have. watched every single episode of it. Okay. Wow, I've only watched like four or five. So we all know Moriarty is the super villain behind every bad thing that happens in Sherlock. The whole thing is the 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 story behind the story is that Moriarty is out to get Sherlock no matter what. Right. But for the first few episodes of this series, we see Sherlock and Watson battling their way through various villains who seem to have different motives, completely different backgrounds, come from different parts of the world, different parts of the city, are seemingly unconnected. So in, we and we were talking about this, we got on this topic because we were wondering, we see this in some like superhero films and stuff like that is like, it seems like, you know, mohaha, I'm the psychotic villain and I'm doing this for no reason other than the fact that I'm psychotic and I would just want to destroy everything. Can that be workable? Because apparently it does work for stories to the extent that people will consume it and enjoy the story. We see that with so many like, you know, you get that not in all of them because and I'm not saying this a bad way because we like Marvel films, but you see this in some Marvel like DC comics and, and different films that are similar to that. You see the the villain doesn't necessarily have a big, strong reason why they're doing everything other than money, power and world domination, which is kind of like really broad, vague terms like I want to control everything. OK, you know, it's like kind of copied and pasted. So can can it work? Obviously, but what, like, when can we use that? When can we adequately use that the villain doesn't really have any reason whatsoever? And what Abby and I were talking about is actually makes that strong and usable, and it actually makes your story even more intriguing, is to use it in that the villain is pointing to a bigger villain. So in The Study in Pink... Eventually, Sherlock, of course, finds the villain who is a cab driver who is killing people by making them choose one pill to take. One of them will kill the person and the other one won't. And he is interviewing the guy. That was like the most concise (laughs) to the point explanation I've ever heard. (laughs) And so he's trying to make Sherlock 
play the game, take one of the pills and see if he dies. And Sherlock is like, you know, why are you doing this? And basically the guy is, is like, you know, no reason. Uh, he finally breaks down and gives him the excuse that he's dying. And so he wants other people to die. He can kill people before he dies himself of an illness. And Sherlock is like, hmm, no, that's not the that's not the real reason. And it, it's kind of revealed like, well, I don't have any reason. I'm just I'm just doing this because I can. Ha. <laughs> but then as the guy is dying because through a series of events, Watson ends up shooting him through the adjoining building. But as the guy's dying, Sherlock finally gets it out of him. Like, why are you actually doing this? And he says Moriarty, the name of the super, super villain, which Sherlock doesn't know who he is at the time. But it's like this haunting little plot twist. That makes Sherlock realize, okay, the real reason is you were working for someone else who is actually out to get me. So it wasn't even you. I thought you were the end game and you had no reason to do this. And that's because you're not even the actual villain villain. There's actually someone behind you who's even bigger and badder that I didn't even know was there. You know what I mean? It's almost like you're so distracted with like trying to put out the fire in front of you and you turn around and the whole forest is on fire. It's like that moment. And so you can, can you make a villain have basically no reason? Yes, if you're using it as a plot twist, I think is the best way to use that, to point to something bigger. So I think even in this case, you still have an active antagonist because the ultimate antagonist, Moriarty, is using these other like mini antagonists to antagonize Sherlock, mm-hmm. which then leads him closer to, you know, it, it, it creates, it's still the game <laughs> that he's playing. Right. So it's all part of the game. And he's using these people as basically chess pieces in his game, but he has a motive for the entire thing. So it's not even, it doesn't even matter, like you were saying, it doesn't quite matter as much if the smaller antagonist, if the chess pieces that are antagonizing the main character don't have a deeply conflicted reason for doing what they're doing because the villain is just placing them <laughs> where, where he wants them because it all points back to the main plot conflict. Right. So as long as you still have that main plot conflict, you still have this main antagonist that is like literally using people for his game against the protagonist. As long as you still have that deep conflict there, I think it's it can be really well done. Right. Which is done. which is great also for series writing. Yeah. Because if you don't necessarily want to reveal the right. super villain right away. You can have some of those smaller antagonists that are the chess pieces, and then they're kind of throwing the hero off the scent of the villain. And then when you as the reader are like, oh, that wasn't it either. That was a dead end. And it makes you realize it's like that plot twist moment where you're like, oh, there's something like bigger. Like, oh, you thought that was it? Watch this. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Which I think Sherlock did a good job of because they were always, what's at the center, especially with mysteries, when you're trying, you're having a protagonist who's trying to solve a mystery. Really, all a mystery is, is a question. Right that they don't have the answer to. And you, the reader, want the answer to this question. And as the writer, you are promising the reader the answer to this question. And so 
bringing them on this journey through the eyes of the protagonist who's trying to also answer this question can be very engaging because as you go along, you're trying to answer the question, you're guessing, you're putting together clues as well. But there has to be a payoff. There has to be a villain that eventually we meet, everything points to them, and the protagonist has to face off with them. Right. So, but but using smaller villains or antagonists as misdirections or chess pieces or however you want to look at it is a really can be a clever and unique way to throw off the scent of the reader while still adding suspense. Right. And not confusing them or disappointing them, but doing it in a satisfying way. Absolutely. I agree. And our last point here, point number five, fifth way to make your villain unforgettable. And this might not be suitable for all villain arcs, but it is definitely worth considering or antagonist arcs, if you prefer that term, is give your villain a redemptive arc. So I have a, I have a lot of questions from, uh, from writers who ask me, um, can I give my villain or my, my antagonist a redemptive arc? Can they redeem themselves at the end of the story? Or are they just destined to be destroyed because they're evil? And the answer is, if they're an antagonist who still has some humanity left in them, some empathy left in them somewhere in their dark little soul, there is a spark of light. They can be redeemed. If you want to take that path, that arc with your antagonist, there is definitely a way to do this well. And I wanted to mention it in this podcast because I think it can be really powerful when it's done well and can help to carry an important theme in your story, depending on what big ideas, what themes you want to weave into your story. But the the theme of redemption, basically, and bringing your character kind of full circle from being a good person to going on this negative arc to starting to redeem themselves at the end. Or maybe they end up being destroyed anyway, but they kind of redeem themselves as they're destroyed, which in that particular case, we were going to use the example of Freya from Winter's War. Yes. I can't remember the first part of that the title. Husband. The Husband, the oh, husband Winter's War. Yes. Everyone's going to scream at me, Abby, come on. <laughs> How could you forget that? Yes. I've just listened to the soundtrack obsessively, so. The soundtrack is great. I listened to the soundtrack many times before watching it. I think that was part it of why really I wanted good, to watch it. It is really good. Really good like, soundtrack. Oh, I want to watch this because the soundtrack is so good, which can be iffy to do that because sometimes you're like, oh, now this has ruined my image of the soundtrack. But this, this film, no, not so. This was a really good film. Yeah. So the character of Freya I found interesting because you were you watched it first and then you were like, we should watch this together because the antagonist arc in this story is really interesting. And I wanted to see it because of that. And it's interesting because it basically her story starts it's kind of like a prequel and then a sequel, right? Because like the first part of it is like events that took place before the first movie and then it like yeah, it, fast it, it, forwards. Yeah. It's a big time <laughs> it's kind of weird skip. timeline thing. Yeah, but it's mostly, I would say, I mean, it mostly is leading with Freya's character. Yes. And so it starts with her in a good place, a neutral kind of positive place of she's obviously conflicted, but she has a good heart 
Right. right. They they did a great job building up the end. Her internal conflict was completely nailed. Yes. When me and Abby talk about make sure your your readers or your viewers know why the villain became the villain. Yes, exactly. They did th- an excellent job. This is a textbook example of what we're talking about here because we see Freya in the very beginning who's this kind of the sweet, innocent sister out of the two. She's kind of untouched by the evil from her sister. It hasn't really rubbed off on her. She's still a good person. She meets this guy. They have a kid. She's going to run off and get married and she kind of believes in true love and happiness. And her sister takes it and destroys it. She destroys Freya's baby and makes her think that it was the boyfriend who did it, which kind of just breaks Freya's heart, causes her to turn into Elsa and blast the guy with ice and turns <laughs> I mean, I was into an ice about statue it. I'm like, this stuff. is like a darker version of <laughs> yeah. Frozen. Yeah, yeah, it is very similar. <laughs> and um, you see how this moment of heartbreak and tra- tragedy destroys her as a person and so even with her power which is to like freeze everything and blast it away from her and protect herself is an example of what she's trying to do she's trying to guard and protect herself from ever being hurt like that again because now her heart's been broken forever so that's we see that is the reason for every single one of her following behaviors right and why she goes on to like wreak destruction on other people. Right. <laughs> and basically kidnap children by the hundreds and destroy their families and right. turn them into her personal army. It's pretty dank. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty dank. But we understand why she did it. We right. saw her at her best. Now we're seeing her at her worst. And we understand exactly what happened during the space in between. Yeah. And then so then when the huntsman and his girlfriend whose name i can't remember <laughs> i can't remember want to be together because they're in love freya sees it and she's like that's not happening and destroys their perceptions of their reality right separates them I think. yeah all i remember is the girl from interstellar and i know that's <laughs> i know i should not refer to her character as that so uh yeah i think you're right i think it was sarah and i'm pretty sure his name was eric yes okay Everyone's going to be laughing. At me uh, in the every comments. time you have to understand, when we, we're always just like Chris Hemsworth's character yeah, Chris in, Hemsworth. in whatever whatever so, film he's in. So Emily Blunt doesn't want Chris Hemsworth to be happy because she's not happy. So, so she destroys their relationship. And okay, yes, you're right, Sarah. <laughs> so she destroys the relationship, makes them think, or makes him think that Sarah died and was killed, and she's destroyed. She's lost you forever. But it's not like this moment of all the antagonist is just this bad evil witch lady who wants everyone to suffer we see why she wants them to suffer and why she doesn't want them to be happy right because she's like deeply traumatized by her own happiness being destroyed so she doesn't want anyone else to experience true love or happiness right and it's kind of like history repeating itself too because they were going to like run away together right Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she sees that that's the exact thing that happened to her. And so she can't bear for someone else to be happy when what she held most dear was taken away. But then we see in the final battle showdown with the resurrected bad sister coming back. I can't remember her name. I've been trying to. Ravenna, I think. Ravenna. Okay. I was trying to find her in the cast list and I couldn't. Yeah, I'm pretty sure her name is Ravenna. Because I'm like, is it? I think it's Ravenna. Again, I only know this because I've listened to the soundtrack so much. 
<laughs> she resurrects herself. Yes, big Rivella. showdown battle with all sorts of magic and stuff. And she finds out her, it was actually her sister who destroyed her kid. And so she, in a moment of realization, realizing that she has been wrong about the world and her outlook on life and even about what happened to her in the past, basically sacrifices her life to save the huntsmen and the rest of her army that is now being threatened by the sister who she brought back to life. Yeah, so she kind of rediscovers her humanity and her love and her ability to love. Yes. Like, you think that she's kind of a lost cause character, like she has been destroyed and emotionally wrecked and she can never love again, but kind of the realization that she has at the end is that she loves her children the huntsmen as like her whole army and basically sacrifices herself to save them yeah and that is a good example of a redemptive arc because it all makes sense yeah you know it all works together it's not out of character but it's also You've also been taking on this whole journey with this character and seeing the reason why she does everything she does. Every every decision makes sense. So I guess that's that's the thing to avoid when you're writing a redemptive arc for an antagonist is you don't want it to just be, and we've seen this done many times, this 180 degree turnaround at the final scene. For like no reason. For no reason. Just, for, you know what? I have been mean. I'm I, sorry. I have been evil. I'm sorry. We forgive you. It's like... It's it feels cheesy because there's no depth of emotion behind it. Right. There's no clear event that causes it to take right. place. Whereas in the case of Winter's War, the event is Freya figuring out, finally knowing the truth about who killed her child. Right. Realizing it was never the guy she was in love with. It was actually her sister. This whole thing has been a setup to make her this dark, evil witch queen. <laughs> she is exactly where her sister wanted her to be. And it causes her to, to kind of dig her heels in and be like, no, I'm going to rebel against that. And I'm going to do something noble. Right. I'm going to save these people. Right. So that makes total sense. But there had to be that realization. It couldn't just be, oh, you know what? For a change of pace, <laughs> we're gonna just, we're, I'm going to be nice. Right, exactly. Because I'm tired of always being evil, so... It's boring. It's boring to me now. That phase is over. Now I'm going to be a good person. There has to be a clear trigger. There has to be a clear reason why the car- the villain is being redeemed. Right, exactly. So if you're going to do a redemption arc for your villain or your, your antagonist, do it the right way. <laughs> right. So... Those are our main, our five points, our five ways to make your craft a villain that is unforgettable and terrifying, but your your audience kind of loves them in a way, loves to hate them and wants to see them redeemed or wants to see the, antagon- the protagonist destroy them. Either way, the five points, again, are make your villain deeply conflicted, the most important one, hide your villain in plain sight, Give your protagonist a reason to spare the villain, make your villain a misdirection, and or give your villain a redemptive arc. So boom, that's it. That's Go watch all those films and <laughs> yes. shows because take your own notes, de- delve into this deeper and see what we're talking about here from your own perspective. Take and notes if, and... And come back and comment on the, yeah. on the podcast and tell us what you thought. Give us your 
your feedback and your ideas. We always love to discuss stories. As you probably noticed, Kate and I could ramble about this for hours. We had to really <laughs> limit ourselves here. Yeah, we did. So feel free to join in the discussion. Keep the discussion going in the comments below. On Kate's YouTube channel, you can find the video. If you're not on there, check it out. YouTube.com slash K.A. Emmons. Follow her channel and follow the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to our sponsors who make this show possible. We couldn't do it without you guys. Thank you so much. And if you get value or enjoyment out of this podcast, show us some support. Go to patreon.com slash the Kate and Abby show and help us keep it alive and free of interruptions. Until next week, stay stoked and rock on. <laughs>